positive feedback loop. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Positive Feedback Loop podcast. This is Ray, your host, and joining me is Stephanie. Hello, everyone. And Luis. Hello. And this is a podcast where we talk about a variety of things that we find interesting and often find ourselves disagreeing with each other. And today's topic uh, we've decided on is to talk about collaboration and what the history of collaboration looks like. And before recording, uh, Luis had mentioned something about how the history have, of collaboration has, has changed and what it's becoming. Yeah, this is actually a really interesting uh, idea. The idea of collaboration is something that, while it's not unique in the animal kingdom, humans have really taken it to a level that has allowed us to really thrive. And it's one of the things that has been noted as being the reason for our success. While other animals, while it's not unique, other animals do collaborate. For example, you know, a honeybee hive is obviously all about collaboration. That's a really structured, rigid order, right? With the queen on top and, you know, doing their, doing her thing and the worker bees doing their things and the drones doing their thing. And, like, that doesn't change much. And then you have other animals that collaborate in their own way but are smaller orders. For example, wolves, wolf packs. Wolf packs tend to be really small groups. They collaborate to a point. But it doesn't build on itself either, right? It's very small, it doesn't grow, and it doesn't build on itself. I just wanted to ask you, you're talking about like numbers here. You're talking about the number of individual beings collaborating with each other. But I was more wondering about their ability to make a decision to collaborate. So I feel like honeybees are insects that collaborate. They operate more on instinct. And that's funny. Insects operating on instinct. It's not that funny. I take it back. <laughs> So the idea is, in order to truly be collaborating, it requires the, a variety of possible decisions to make, and the decision to collaborate is what defines collaboration. Otherwise, it's just instinct. You're just operating on the natural order of things, and any beings that are deviating from that system are just like left in the wind. Well, I would disagree with this. I would say that the reason that collaboration works for humans is because we evolutionarily are predisposed to it. We're predisposed to working together. And there's a whole host of reasons, and I, we could talk about that for hours. But at the end of the day, evolutionarily, we are equipped with the tools that make it more likely that we will survive if we cooperate. And that we are, our imperative is to cooperate. And it's not based on just deciding as an individual, it's because we have that imperative built into ourselves. Agreed. I wanted to mention what about the complex collaborations that we currently have uh, in terms of science and research where the collaborations that you form, you, you have to consciously make those decisions to go towards one strategy or the other. For example, if you have a hundred different potential partnerships that you can form with your company and another or uh, your team and another team, you have a lot of options and ways to go. So how do you choose which ones to collaborate on uh, depends on what you perceive as will have the most value at the end. It seems like there's a difference between process discipline. I was reading about this on uh, Carnegie Mellon's site. I think it was the Software Engineering Institute. They talk about process discipline as like, you know, you're working together to, to improve processes, to be efficient. You're working well together. And then the other side of it is collaboration, which is 
building on and thinking about and cognating together what is the better way to do something or a very different way, how to solve a problem versus just to work efficiently together. So how can we differentiate between these two definitions? I, I would also like to point out that we're talking here on collaboration on two very different scales. The scale that you're bringing up, Ray, is the very individual scale where it's very small in your life, what you feel you're collaborating with. But the thing that you're missing is that in the bigger picture, humans collaborate just by our very nature. The entire structure of modern society is predisposed on us collaborating. The job you do helps create things or processes that allow other people to do their job, which allows them to the other people to do their job, which allows other people to do their job, which then creates value for the society as a whole. And this is not something that you really think about because whether you go and collaborate with company A or company B, at the end of the day, you're still working. And that work requires you to have collaborated with many other points along the line and many other humans that you've never even met. And that's fascinating. All of modern society is built on collaboration and an iterative process of value being added on top of value being added on top of knowledge, on top of knowledge, on top of knowledge. There was a person a while back that decided to do a project where they were going to build a toaster on their own, just using no one else and no resources from anywhere else. They were going to mine the resources to build the toaster. They were going to smelt the, the metals, create the circuits, and then make the toaster on their own. It didn't come out great. It took them a long time, and it was highly inefficient, obviously, because that's, you know, that's a huge supply chain. But that is all collaboration when you think about it. All of that is. Isn't it more what you're saying, what you're talking about, and that development of a supply chain, it's more the result of market forces that have enabled the need and wants of one side versus another side and the availability and supply of one side versus another side to create those things. I think, I think most of history, people were cooperating, not necessarily collaborating. They were like, there was a overarching power that most people had to abide by, but they cooperated with the power because the power... Uh, whether it was a king or whether it was some sort of like tyranny or whatever, um, they had no real other options, but they had to cooperate. They were like, okay, we'll cooperate. It's like cooperating with, you know, cooperating with law enforcement or cooperating with um, certain entities that is just the social norm. Collaboration requires more conscious effort. It is, in fact, you are going to be sacrificing time through collaboration because you're going to have a lot of you know, failures in between in order to reach that higher level. And I agree with you. We are on the path towards increased collaboration as human beings, especially now more than ever. I think a lot throughout history, it's been more cooperation because you were limited on choices. Well, the etymology is really interesting of those two words because I, I think that cooperation and collaboration are different. Cooperation, you have like this supply chain mentality, the efficiency, the operation of things, and how can we work together to make that toaster happen? I mean, that does take a lot of combined human power. Someone can't do it on their own. Uh, and then you have the etymology of collaborate, which is more of the laborare, the labor, the work of something. You know, at first glance, I would think, well, you know, operate and labor, operation and labor are similar. The operation is 
process, the definition of the process of how things happen, whereas the labor is is putting in that work together. You're really co-laboring. You're working on something together. Uh, so you could cooperate where you where two people have very different maybe lines in the supply chain, and then you have collaborating where you both have the same problem, and you may still have different functions or different ways of approaching things, but because you both have trying to solve the same problem together, you're somehow collaborating on it. So I wonder what that means for us. Well, interestingly enough, I would say I agree that there is a difference in the two. And humans throughout history have always had a choice when it came to whether to cooperate or not. So yeah, there's and collaboration and cooperation happen in so many different ways, in different industries, uh, in different social parts of life. There's collaboration being done in the most unexpected places. And hell, if you don't want to cooperate, the humans have had this choice throughout all of history, really. People can always turn to crime. Which is super interesting because you think that if you want to get out of the system of organized society, you'd turn to crime. But actually, crime can be very organized, organized crime. I was reading on uh, the FBI website about crime rings because I was very interested in how crime rings function. And the Bureau actually found, finds that uh, the definition of kind of a, a crime ring is that there's some discipline. So if there's a group that's disciplined in some way, let's see, Wikipedia says, gangs may become disciplined enough to be considered organized, which I think is fascinating that discipline is the definition of what makes crime organized. I want to read the, this part. This is really interesting. They say... The Bureau has found that even if key individuals in an organization are removed, the depth and financial strength of the organization often allow it to continue. So, like, there's cr there are crime rings out there that are so organized that even if one person is pulled out, even if the leader is pulled out, they can actually still be functioning at a very high level. So my question is, is this level of organization, this ability to, like, keep going even when the leader is gone, is that related to collaboration and cooperation or is discipline and organization something totally different to me that sounds more like a group that's believing in a certain ideology and the leaders of that group they're not what's leading the entire group anymore it's that ideology like for example like there's a lot of gangs and gang violence that happens you know all over the world really and they're formed into certain types of charters, like different cities charter this with this gang, and so they collaborate together. Like different cities will send funds to different to the headquarters, and they pay like, their dues and things like that, and they help organize transactions depending on illegal narcotics or firearms or whatever crime rings do. I would disagree with you on that. I don't think that for the Wait, most part... These, disagree I disagree with crime with crime rings being based on ideology for the most part a lot of them are based on demand most crime is based on demand really at the end of the day because there's usually a need in society that is not being fulfilled by the structures that exist or there is insufficient policing to stop people from abusing some of the systems in place so people come in they say for example drugs we can talk about drugs. I mean, that's there's a huge level of organized crime that revolves around selling drugs, right? If there was no demand for drugs, people wouldn't sell drugs. It's not because cartels have 
a belief that drugs are an inherent right of people. It's just because it makes there's money there, and so Actually, they work together to sell it better. So, in the terms that you say, you're right. There is a demand, and these gangs come in to fill that demand because there's no one else doing it. However, there are certain when you get to a certain level, because Stephanie was talking about how the top leaders may eventually crumble, they'll, they'll fall, and there will be no one to replace them or whatever. The thing is, someone will replace them because they are still believing in the, a certain ideology. For example, I want to talk about a really organized marketplace that was less centralized than the typical family syndicates. And I'm talking about Silk Road and how that marketplace was built. And then there was no known leader, or the leader was unknown, at least, in terms of who he really is initially. I just want to differentiate for a second for listeners that the Silk Road we're talking about is the electronic Silk Road, which is an online was an online marketplace, not the real-life Silk Road, which was a route between China and the rest of the West, right, that allowed for trade commerce to happen. I just want to clarify that point. Thanks, Luis. Agreed. And the Silk Road or other marketplaces that might be involved with illegal activity primarily operate under the dark web or the dark net that can be accessed through different browsers like Tor and whatever. I guess do your research and we do not advise anyone enter the dark web at all. But the point is these organized crime syndicates form and they pop up and they're disciplined in a way in that they have certain community guidelines that they all abide by, but they're not really led in the same way a structured organized gang might operate. Because a structured organized gang has hierarchy, very specific hierarchy. And it's not easy to enter into the hierarchy. But when you're talking about uh, this kind of decentralized networking system, if you have, if you meet the demands of the market, you can rise up quickly. Like you're saying, Luis, you're right. If you can meet the demands of the market, you become higher up on the food chain. Can you really get that far up on the food chain by yourself? This goes back to the story of the toaster for me. You know, could you really make a difference without binding together with people? So what's interesting is that these transnational crime rings, they are transnational now even more easily, especially with cyber attacks, because of this electronic Silk Road. The fact that fiber optic cables travel the extent of the Earth's circumference and that they can do you know multifaceted attacks and things like that you know there's always anonymous out there who you know comes across as one person it's always kind of one face but it, we know that it's not one person in reality it's it's a group of people it, it may be you know an anarchy that that where people just tend to claim that identity but there's some sort of multiplicity of people involved right yeah, I, uh, groups that. So one of the things that's interesting about the way that modern crime can happen, which was not the case before, is that a hacker by himself can do an insane amount of damage. But even with that, obviously, having a community is more effective than having one person, which is why you have uh, several groups. There's obviously uh, anonymous, which is a group of different of hackers. And one of the things that keeps them protected is that, yes, they because they are relatively disparate and decentralized, if one goes down, the others are relatively isolated and insulated from the fallout. 
which makes it more difficult for organizations to actually capture them. Similarly, you have other groups like the, I think it's the Free Syrian Army, and the, which is another hacking uh, cooperative, and there's there's a whole bunch of groups like that. And the way that they operate oftentimes is, you know, they'll pick a target, oftentimes they'll work together, they will uh, find a way to hit that target, be able to take a lot of information and then sell that information in the black market, and then oftentimes make a pretty penny that way, or just if they're doing it for a political cause, because oftentimes these groups are motivated by political causes, as Ray said, you know, sometimes ideology is in play, then they will probably work together even more so because now they have some guiding principle that they feel is righteous and they need to do something about, uh, which is also a strong motivator. I mean, we can't, we, we, we all know that there are different things that lead humans to take action. And while monetary gain is one of them, few things are inspire people as much as a hatred or an anger at something, you know, something that motivates you towards action against a target or for something for a principle. These are things that throughout history we've seen have motivated extreme actions from many groups. And we still see this today. Yeah, no, you make great points. And uh, I think that it's interesting that we started off talking about collaboration and cooperation. What are the differences? And then we started getting into how uh, human beings are, how human beings tend towards collaboration and what that means uh, in organized crime and, and organized development of systems that can be even decentralized so they don't have to even worry about leaders falling and things like that. So that's pretty interesting. I want to also get into the incentives that drive people towards collaboration, even in the, in the networks of crime. And we'll be talking about that after our break. Thank you. Keep listening. PFL Podcast, the best. You've listened to the PFL Podcasts, but you're ready for something a little more tactile. To celebrate nine months of being on the air, we bring you the Positive Feedback Loop Threadless Store. Head on over to pflpodcast.threadless.com to view our designs. You can order men's, women's, and kids' t-shirts, phone cases, notebooks, bags, and a whole lot more. Want to carry PFL around with you? Now you can! pflpodcast.threadless.com Welcome back, everybody. I hope you enjoyed that commercial. And now we're back, and we're here trying to understand the different incentives behind collaboration and cooperation and how people have tried studying cooperation and collaboration throughout history. One of the things that a lot of companies are dealing with is how to incentivize cooperation because the original idea of having people work to make the most on their own, to create the most value for the company on their own, is kind of fading away as we move towards more cooperative models and more collaborative models. So one of the things that there's been a lot of research on is how do we incentivize these behaviors? Because, you know, incentives have a huge role in creating co uh, corporate culture. We found some a study from 2014 which uh, shows that in companies where you have three different types of uh, encouragement, right? You have positive incentives, which reward people, negative incentives, which punish people, and both, or none at all, the companies that did both tended to have the most cooperation. Uh, just doing one or the other, just giving people rewards or just giving punishments is not sufficient to really get the level of cooperation that most companies are generally looking for. Additionally, one thing that they found was that they tended to be the most successful, tended to have individual 
sort of cooperative leaders, people who really took towards creating cooperation themselves, and then that people who were more conformist or more conformers, I think is how they referred to them in the study, they tended to follow along. And without those people, you don't really get that base of collaboration that you might want. So this is something that if you ever in your company want to make sure that you know you have the right culture, if this is something that's right for your company, having both that balance of positive and negative incentives, plus trying to identify those key leaders who can bring people along with them into a more cooperative environment is crucial to making sure that succeeds. Sometimes we put too much weight on developing a really good collaborative system or collaborative culture, and that we think that it's really all about the culture itself that any group of people can thrive and collaborate in. And I, I wonder if that's true. I was actually on LinkedIn this morning, and I had I follow Paul Allen, who's the founder of Ancestry.com, and he had posted a quote by Jason Swank, who's a serial entrepreneur, and he basically said, Jason Swank says, systems outperform talent all day long, and then Paul Allen responded, and who built the systems? Paul Allen argues that talent and the people you choose and hire and their talents and their abilities and their willingness to collaborate are more important and sometimes override even the best of cultures and systems. Sure, but just to defend the initial quote, I think there it also depends on what kind of what kind of jobs are being done. You know, in some cases I totally agree with you. Talent is what would drive success, what drives creativity, what drives new systems, innovation. But I understand the original quote because what is they're trying to say is instead of doing the same thing the same way you've always been doing it, let's try to find a, an efficient process in which the system can alleviate some of this work for these people and offer them a new activity or a new type of job and allow them to collaborate more. So I see your point. I um, just wanted to like hit, at a, a, hit on it at a different angle. Yeah, I see where you're coming from. I just wonder... If it's a chicken and egg problem, so did human talent come first and create collaboration? If humans, through their talents, have achieved developing a system of collaboration, and then they're collaborating and things are going well, if it's really that talent that was the precursor to the collaboration, then is it then greater than the collaboration? Not that it's greater because things build on each other, so those that come after may be greater, but is it the... is talent the father of collaboration, I guess? No company would survive if all they're trying to do is hire only geniuses. And I say genius in the loosest sense, sense of the word. I mean, people who are fantastic for the role that you want them to do. This is why we create systems. Now, obviously, you want people who are the best at what they do to design these systems. But the systems are there to ensure that they can bring people to a base minimum above what would happen if you didn't have the system at all. Because you can't escape the fact that human psychology is human psychology, and we have certain ways of approaching problems that may not always be optimal. That's why we have things like the Constitution in the U.S., right? You you create these systems to fight against our worst instincts and inspire the best instincts. So those that have the best ability can bring that, and those that have the worst instincts don't bring that. And that's why we need systems. Otherwise, it would just be chaotic. We also know that a great team, in most great teams, the reason they are so great is because the diversity of the members within the team 
are so different that they give them, I guess, in agreement with what Luis is saying, the more different the individuals are, the better the creativity and the better the potential for collaboration exists. So you don't want all the geniuses because then you'll just hit a roadblock with all the geniuses not working together or like forming their own uh, thoughts and not able to collaborate. You want people of all walks of life, some that can act as a genius, some that play different roles in the, the team or in the group. So, Well, yeah. researchers would disagree with you. They, there's a, a debate going on about diversity of teams, but many researchers have found that collaboration is the easiest and best and most effective with people who are more like each other. But, as you pointed out, the ideas aren't as good. So when you have more diversity, you get a, bet, a more diversity of ideas, uh, which may seem obvious. But that doesn't mean that the collaboration is good. In fact, there's this difference between task conflict and personal conflict. And diverse teams have have a higher propensity toward personal conflict, which can destroy the team. So we have to work on that. And p teams where people are more, but they have better ideas come out of them. And then you have teams who are more like each other. <laughs> and if they're more like each other, they're, they collaborate more easily, but their ideas may not be as good. And to go back to kind of Luis's point of the geniuses, I don't know if collaboration is better with geniuses that like just being good at your job, but I do wonder if you can hire people who are better at collaborating. Is it really the culture that you build that may facilitate anyone to collaborate better? Or is it wiser to hire people who collaborate well? Is it a is collaboration? Is collaboration a talent or a skill exactly? Yes, that's my question. Well, actually, this brings me to a very interesting question, which is the bigger the group, the better at collaboration. Now, this brings us to our first ever debunking bunker. Da -da -da. Or debunking bunker. The debunking bunker. Get in the bunker. Woo! <laughs> <laughs> we have a long-standing idea that crowds are this panicky mess of people, that people are inherently just terrible when put in large congregations, especially if something bad happens. But we have seen over and over and over again in research and case studies that this is actually not the case. It has been very well shown by science that crowds are actually, generally speaking, very good at taking care of each other, cooperating and getting to a place where they can be as safe as possible for the most part. Now, granted, there are situations which is, where this is not the case. But for the most part, crowds are actually very responsive and very cooperative. And in fact, we can see this recently with more, more recent terrorist attacks where you've seen people really going out of their way to make sure that everyone is safe. You don't hear about people being killed in a stampede and during these attacks. For the most part, people are helping each other. And this has been seen throughout most, history, most of history. This is one of the reasons why the wisdom of crowds is such a well-researched topic because crowds are actually really good at making decisions. Not always, but often. And that's why we have a whole area of science that studies this. Debunking bunker. So maybe <laughs> I want to add to that conversation. What about crowd thinking? And when you see like one bad actor influence the behavior of the entire crowd and everyone just follows unthoughtfully, that happens too. You can have like a whole riot occur because people just think that's the right thing to do because everyone else is doing it. I, I still have some doubt about debunking this. Well, generally, generally speaking, a riot was a different 
thing that's happening. It generally happens to be more chaos, more localized chaos that has there's a source to the chaos, and it's not just a person that's the source. It's generally like there is something that's inspiring the chaos. Sometimes there is a blackout or something happens. That doesn't mean that I mean criminality, the law, the breakdown of order. These things can happen, but for the most part, those events are relatively rare, at least in society. When you think about the fact that we as a society, there are a lot of us in on Earth, and for the most part, we're relatively organized. And what about like protests? You have protests that are organized, and you have people talking about the same thing, but then you can see potential fights spurring out during a protest, and people join in because they just feel like that's what the crowd idolizes, I guess. Or not really Note, take into account that the, for the vast majority of protests they are generally peaceful. And even if there are one or two bad actors, for the most part, and again, it depends on where the situation and all the environment, you know, did the, the, the police fight back? Did something else happen? You know, is there something else that's caused, or someone shooting? You know, that that sort of stuff can kind of throw things off. But for the most part, protests don't tend to break into this mass chaos. Because imagine a protest can have thousands of people. If the full thousands of people decided to go aggressive and violent, it would not just be a protest. We would be calling that an explosion of chaos. What you think of as a violent protest generally involves like one or two really angry people doing something stupid, maybe a teenager or two, right? And while that may be changing and there may be more politically charged car climate that causes people to do dumber and more aggressive things, for the most part, groups tend to be calmer. And again, you do have organized groups that want to create mischief and chaos. So that's a different story. And that's a different topic that I'm not addressing with a debunking bunker. This goes back to the, the difference between process discipline, organization, versus collaboration. Collaboration is this problem-solving, innovative activity of people. The other is the opposite of chaos, this order. And staying in order may be different than collaboration. Ray, you, you bring up groupthink. I see a lot of groupthink happening on a smaller scale where there's someone who's in need on the street, and if one person passes by, they all pass by, which is basically the story of the Good Samaritan in the Bible. So I wonder, is there a dark side to the way we work together and find ways to work together? And how can we stay on that light side? You know what's interesting? This is kind of um, leading away from the primary conversation, but... The idea of collaboration, mostly we've talked about how humans are collaborating. But what about different networks or artificial intelligence or machines collaborating? And that's a topic that is quite strange to me. Uh, it's, I don't think, well understood yet because the level of collaboration, is it limited by the human talent that creates it? Or is it not limited by the human talent that's creating these systems? At which point does the level of collaboration amongst artificial intelligence become its own and not part of the human element anymore? I think it depends on what you're designing the machine to do. Like if we're talking about like Microsoft's attempt to making a Twitter, a Twitter bot that learns and from the crowd and then learned only the worst possible things and had to be shut down because it was so aggressively awful. That's one thing. If you're talking about the Internet of Things, where different machines can talk to each other and cooperate in that sense, that's a different thing. That's not generally artificial intelligence in the way that you might think about it in a movie sense. That's more like your toaster knows that you're in the house because your light's turned on, right? That's a little bit of a different story. 
I think it's not so much about the skill of the people behind it, but the purpose of the machine that really dictates whether they can collaborate. And whether it's true collaboration or simply just design thinking is a different story. Because we go back to the Chinese room idea of, is artificial intelligence actually intelligent? Right? At what point do we reach that moment? And that's a whole other conversation that I think we can address in another day. I think you're right. It is too much to handle for this podcast episode, but I just want to let our listeners know we are available for listen on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Apple iTunes. So please join, subscribe, get involved. Let's talk. We're making big moves. You are too. Let's do it together. PFL Podcast. Signing off. Stay crazy. Stay Stay crazy. crazy. <laughs> okay. All right.